for those of you who are just now joining us, we are joined today with Lev Golinkin. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Uh, Lev is a New, Jer- New Jersey-based journalist originally from Ukraine, and he was one of the first Western analysts, analysts to warn of the Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov Battalion all the way back in 2014. 2014, a very important year if you've been keeping up with Ukraine, as that is the year that the uh, coup in Maidan happened and has kind of been the springboard to a lot of what we've seen uh, come to fruition, especially starting in January in Ukraine. So first of all, Lev, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. And for some of our listeners who who might not understand the full background, could you give us just kind of a brief little rundown of, of the events that transpired in, in Maidan in 2014 and how that's kind of set the stage for what we've been seeing over the past six months or so? Yeah. In, um, in 2013, 2014, Ukraine was, um, as it has been for since 1991, a state that was mired in post-communist corruption, a state that was very much split along linguistic lines and lines of where they saw Russia. Eastern Ukraine had a lot of its industry tied to Russia and economy tied to Russia, so they were very much in favor of uh, maintaining good relationships with Moscow. Western Ukraine, uh, which is the seat of Ukrainian uh, nationalism, um, was very much opposed to Moscow and, Moscow and wanted to cast its chances with its, its lot with Europe. In 2013, uh, the president of Ukraine was Viktor Yanukovych, and um, Yanukovych was a corrupt scumbag. He was a spectacularly corrupt scumbag. But, and this is a thing that gets omitted so often in the Western narrative, he was also democratically elected. The uh, election of 2010, which put Yanukovych into power, was signed off by the European Union, by several election monitoring bodies, and even Western media admitted that he was the legitimate president of Ukraine. This part is going to come in very important in a second. So, you have this uh, Western Ukrainian versus Eastern Ukrainian uh, cauldron going on. And you have Yanukovych, who is the president of all of Ukraine, and he uh, has to choose between basically casting his country's lot with Russia via an economic union or with the European Union. And he's vacillating between going one way or the other. He says at first, he says, "I'm going to sign. I'm going to sign this agreement with the with the European Union and tie the country's economy to Europe, to Western Europe." And then uh, suddenly he says, "You know what? No, I'm not going to do it. Uh, it's important for us to keep our economy with Russia. I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to sign the contract." The mass protests begin in what is now known as the Maidan Uprising. And this starts uh, in November of 2013 and goes through February 2014, where millions of people rally against Yanukovych. They say, no, we want to be part of Europe. Uh, A lot of people there also just rally about the endemic corruption in the country. And millions of people take place, uh, take part in this. But, and this is what people so often forget, Ukraine had 45 million people at this time, okay? And half of Ukraine was not in participating in the protests. In fact, half of Ukraine supported Yanukovych. And the eastern half of Ukraine did not want to break ties with Moscow. That's where, that's where, their, uh, that's where their economy was tied to. That's where they had linguistic, cultural ties, etc. And um, Yanukovych was very much from eastern Ukraine. His constituents, his 
base of support was in eastern Ukraine. So he was uh, he was kind of working to help his people, the people who elected him. The protests turned violent, turned brutal. Um, there began street fighting. There uh, just uh, just very very violent, uh, very uh, sharp turn towards violence. Eventually, Yanukovych was ousted from power and he fled to Russia. Okay. And here is, here's the thing that it's important to uh, remember. As these protests were happening, a whole bunch of uh, American diplomats, uh, Senator McCain, Senator Chris Murphy, um, eventually Joe Biden, uh, John Kerry, uh, Victoria Nuland, who was the um, Assistant Secretary of State. So you have these top people from the American government join the protests in Ukraine and stand on the platform with the leaders of the protests and say, we are with you, okay? And just take a second, like, we're, to, we're looking at a January 6th protest now, okay? Imagine if Russia or China or Iran or any country sent local representatives to fly into Washington and join the protesters and say, we are with you, okay? If that happened, it would be seen as a declaration of war, okay? If that happened, people would be flipping out. It would be... The story of January 6th would be the foreign-backed uprising, okay? And here we did the exact, we actually did this in Ukraine, where we had senior members of the U.S. government join protesters against a democratically elected president. And nobody said a word. Our, when we did it, we were supporting democracy, and it was not a problem at all. When we say about others, we say, oh, how dare does anybody take an, take an interest in our election? How dare they? How dare they interfere with our sovereignty? But John McCain and Chris Murphy and John Kerry and Joe Biden had no problem interfering with an uprising, with a revolt against a democratically elected president. In fact, they cheered it on and they, they played a pretty big role in, in, in helping it. So after the coup happened, Yanukovych was ousted. Uh, the eastern part of Ukraine, the parts that voted against Yanukovych, were understandably angry because he was their president and he was tossed out. And they they voted for him. The deal was he was the president until his term was up. So it was not too difficult um, for them to already start feeling uneasy and start feeling like they the, they uh, their vote and their views and their their. Uh, experiences in their regions were not part of this new Ukraine. Um, Russia successfully uh, started pouring, well, Russia took over Crimea. Russia successfully then started pouring weapons, uh, soldiers, resources into into the eastern part of Ukraine, the industrial part of Ukraine called Donbass. That is, uh, the if you want to think about what Donbass is, uh, the people of Donbass have much more in common with Western uh, Pennsylvania and with Cleveland and, and the rest of Ohio than they do with Moscow, or Washington, or or Kiev. They're very salt of the earth. Uh, they are very much uh, into industry, into coal mining. They're proud of what they do. They are. Um, they're very much, you know, let me work and leave me alone type of people. They're very blue clad, blue. Uh, collar workers. They were the ones who were furious that their president was overthrown. So they rose up against against this new U.S.-backed government. 
Putin started supporting them, while America started supporting Kiev. And this is something, again, that's very, this is an inconvenient truth that gets lost in the narrative. People always say, oh, Russian-backed separatists, Russian-backed separatists. Yeah, correct. They were backed by Russia, and if they were not backed by Russia, Ukraine would have snuffed them out. But they all, but Kiev simultaneously was backed by America. And if America did not pour the resources, the billions into Ukraine, Ukraine would have collapsed because Donbass was the heartland of Ukraine. It, it, uh, like 20% of Ukraine's GDP came from it. It was, uh, it, it was a powerhouse. And um, if not for America pouring in billions of dollars in supplies and funding, uh, Kiev would have easily lost too. Um, and the other thing, and this is the most crucial, Ryan mentioned this before uh, we went on, the people of Donbass are Ukrainians. So often they just refer to as Russian-backed separatists, as if they popped out of nowhere. These people are Ukrainians. They speak Russian, just like I am from Kharkiv. I'm from the eastern Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, where I speak Russian, but I mean, my family is from Ukraine. We were there, we lived there, we paid taxes. My family members fought for Ukraine. So... Um, it's very easy to alienate the people of Eastern Ukraine because they're inconvenient to the Western narrative, to America, to the American narrative. So we ignore them. Um, we act as if all of Ukraine was a united bloc that was in support of, uh, of overthrowing Yanukovych, that was in support of, uh, of uh, joining the EU, and that's, that's absolute garbage. And the rebels, they are Ukrainians. They just happen to be the wrong kind of Ukrainians from the American and Western European narrative. And so they're... Um, very often ignored. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. A few years ago, there was this film called Winter on Fire, okay? This documentary that was, it was nominated for the Oscar, and it was this big, big thing, and it was this, this Ukrainian, uh, this documentary about the Ukrainian uprising. And when the, like, I remember watching it and just being like, this is the biggest piece of propaganda imaginable. And then looking into it, I, I saw in a couple of interviews with the director, and the one interview, um, they asked him, the, you know, why didn't you include all these people, the, the half of the country that was against the uprising, okay? Because he made it seem like the entire country was united. And he said, yeah, well, it was inconvenient to the story. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it sure was. So you just simply edited them out. I mean, he didn't win the Oscar, but he showed, if, if there was an Oscar for deceptive editing, I mean, this guy should have been in. Yeah. You know? Well, the truth, the truth is oftentimes inconvenient, but that doesn't mean you just discard it. In fact, oftentimes when powerful people try to discard the truth, it's because it, it goes against their narrative and, it, and it, it's a threat to the, what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you and kind of jump in here is uh, why do you – so, you know, I'm, I'm an American, obviously. I, you know, I – but one thing that – the way the war has been sold to us is that – you know, the United States is bringing democracy to Ukraine. But one of the big problems I have with, with that argument mm -hmm. is how can we bring democracy to Ukraine when we haven't brought anything that resembles a democracy to our own shores and to our own country? You know, our government right now doesn't work for, for, for our people. It's completely beholden to corporations and billionaires. We have an oligarchy and that's disguised as a democracy. So... You know, I don't trust I – mean, the way the U.S. government treats working class and poor people in our country is terrible. The way they treat poor and working class people abroad is terrible. So why you – know, do, you, do, you know do you know where I'm getting at here? Like do you trust that the United States 
uh, has the best intentions, that actually cares about the sovereignty of the Ukrainian people. And of course, let me say, I don't, I don't support Russia invading Ukraine, but are there any good actors here that actually care about the sovereignty of Ukraine? Because from my perspective, I see that the United States is, is kind of interjecting itself um, uh, because it's, it's convenient to kind of use Ukraine to go against one of its main adversaries in Russia uh, in order to maintain a, a, you know, United States global domination and, and hegemony. No, I don't think there's, and, and this is a part, I mean, people always want the good guys and there's, you know, the, the good guys, unfortunately, are the ones that we don't work with. Uh, there are people on the ground who are just um, the really brave people who work with the LGBT organizations, for example, okay? And and they risk their lives, literally, I mean, uh, to to bring equality to Ukraine, and they and they stand up, you know? There's also uh, anti-corruption journalists and, 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 um, and activists. A lot of them often get killed. So, but we don't work with the good guys there. I mean, we immediately, let me put it this way. So you bring in democracy. The biggest part of Maidan was was anti-corruption because people were just so sick of living in a country where everything was for sale. You couldn't get anything fairly. Okay? Right. But that's America. Like we are, we have the most corrupt government in the world. That's what I'm saying. Like, how can how can the Ukrainians trust that? Like, and to want to follow our model just because we have the, you know the most billionaires and, and and we're the so-called richest nation on earth doesn't mean we're creating a great society for our own people. I mean, again, America treats its working class like shit. So how you know what I'm saying? Like, how can how can a nation that's so corrupt bring democracy anywhere? Oh, I'm not sure if Ukrainians are asked for their opinion when it comes to whether they want to follow America or not. Gotcha. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think it was a lot easier in the Cold War during the Cold War because you know we imagined America as being this shining city on the hill, all the you know all of that yeah. propaganda. Right. But now, the illusion. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But now people, I mean, I mean, Ukrainians have the internet. Ukrainians see all the different scandals and everything that happens. So I'm not sure. Again, I, I don't speak for anybody but myself. But I think it's very hard to say that. I think you know the people who say, "Oh, the people of Ukraine want this and that," are often just politicians in Washington. Mm. Uh, there's really, you know, you don't see real polls of pe- what people in Ukraine actually want. Right. You know, uh, so I mean, they wanted they wanted an end to corruption. But here's the thing: like the the, the the person that America put in power, the person that they backed very much uh, after the ouster of Yanukovych, turned out to be this guy Poroshenko, Petro Poroshenko, who was Ukraine's biggest oligarch. Okay, so, and I remember at the time I was just I was writing and I was talking to people and I was like, you know, this guy's like, if you're going to get rid of corruption, it's like this guy's the last guy you want to put in. And I'll never forget this. A couple of people from think tanks and stuff, they said, well, you know, at least he knows a lot about the system so he can, you know, so he can come. I'm like, that's <laughs> like, that's like saying put like El Chapo, you know, like the drug baron, El Chapo. That's like saying put him in charge of drug enforcement. It's like, well, he sure knows a lot about international smuggling. Yeah, he does because he's a drug cartel boss. Like yeah. putting yeah. in charge of it is like, well, he sure knows a lot about offshore accounts. Yeah, because he's one of the biggest thieves in Ukraine, you know? And um, and it's also worth remembering that um, so much of Ukraine, they say that Americans helped out. People who came in in the 1990s were people like Paul Manafort, people like Hunter Biden uh, in the 1990s and beyond. There were people who taught Ukrainian thieves much more refined and lucrative ways of stealing. <laughs> right. These before 
before Americans and Western Europeans came to Ukraine, people like Yanukovych and Poroshenko stole millions, okay? After they were introduced to offshore accounts and various other schemes, they started stealing billions from the people of Ukraine. So um, it's it's the people, that, you know, So and, and that also explains why there's just so much cynicism, both in Russia and Ukraine, just about about the concept of democracy, because it was it was basically American oligarchs helping um, helping Ukrainian oligarchs steal even more, you right. know, all in the name of democracy. Right. Yeah. Kind of like what they do here. I mean, the elites and the American oligarchs, uh, you know, rig the system against the working class and and, and basically funnel it, it, pass laws that will funnel as much wealth as possible to the ruling class. And now we're it's like we're. They say we're, you know, that we fight these wars to bring democracy to other countries. But the truth is that we're just teaching them, you know, their oligarchs how to loot the working class, you know, in the same way that our, our oligarchs have done to us. Uh, so that for me has always been my skepticism. You know, it's like we were told, oh, no, we're bringing democracy to Ukraine. And, and all of a sudden, every liberal in America is just supporting, you know, what Biden and, and is saying and what the U.S. government's saying. But like our government doesn't have a very good track record when it comes to these wars and when it comes to intervention. And also um, we backed a coup, we backed a coup against a democratically elected leader in Ukraine. Yanukovych, again, was a scumbag, but he was democratically elected. So, right. you know, we, we kicked off our democracy building mission by uh, supporting the ouster of a democratically elected president. Which is literally the opposite of democracy, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So Lev, I have a quick question. Um, after the, the events of, of Maidan in 2014, um, I've read reports, I just want to get your thoughts on it, that they were banning communist parties and they were talking about banning Russian as a second language as being things that continue to upset people in the Donbass region, eastern part of Ukraine. Was was there this kind of sense of of like, strongman authoritarianism that was coming in or or what was the kind of the overall um, viewpoint of ukrainians once uh, yanukovych was out of power so much of it was so much of maidan was taken over so much of it was first of all just genuine everyday people who wanted to participate i've spoken with a bunch of them who you know just they wanted an end for corruption of corruption they wanted to live in just a normal place where you didn't have to bribe people to get uh, to get a fair grade on your report card or your kids report, you know, things like that. You know, you didn't have to bribe, you didn't have police pulling you over just every time, just demanding bribes, things like that. You know, it was everyday people. But the, the part of Maidan that, came, that was taken over uh, came from Western Ukrainian nationalism. And they, and it's, which is basically a type of fascism. Okay, the ultra-nationalists there, and they uh, hate Russia, which uh, certainly Ukrainians have very good reasons for it. But the problem is Ukraine is a multilingual, different society. And the only thing holding Ukraine together was this sort of uh, let different regions do what they want. And the thing about, I don't know much about how much people uh, perceive the Communist Party banning. They did ban the Communist Party. Um, but... As far as the language part, it was awful because the moment that this new government came to power in Ukraine, okay, I mean, the bodies of protesters weren't even buried. And the first thing that the people who came to power did was try to eliminate a law that protected the status of Russian as well as other languages. And again, Ukraine is a very uh, diverse country. There's a part of Ukraine um, 
that Transcarpathia, which speaks Hungarian. And people there, for example, they didn't move to Ukraine. Ukraine came to them. They're, they literally, at the end of World War II, they were literally told, congratulations, you're not part of Ukraine, whereas they used to be part of Hungary for 1,200 years, okay? And they spoke Hungarian, never had a problem with anybody. The people, uh, there were people who spoke Greek. There's people who spoke just various different languages, different communities and enclaves. And there was not a problem with anything. Ukraine, Ukrainian was the number one language in the, the only official language in the country. But there were laws allowing for regional groups to uh, re, uh, to use the languages that their people spoke. And and these people were all native-born Ukrainian. They just happened to speak a different language, just like people in Canada, in Quebec, happened to speak French. They're still Canadian. And this government comes to power after this uprising after overthrowing Yanukovych. And the first thing they do, the first thing they do is try to repeal protection of the Russian language, okay? So understandably, the half of the country that speaks Russian as its primary language was pretty darn alarmed, you know? And then I, I remember this, I wrote about this in The Nation at the time, John Kerry, who was uh, Secretary of State for America, he personally spoke and he promised Eastern Ukrainians that their language will not be touched. He said, this is all Putin's lies. Do not, you know, do not let Putin fool you. This law that protects languages will be kept on the books. You will be fine. And the U.S. State Department also issued an official document saying the lies of Vladimir Putin. And one of them said that Russian speakers are threatened. And it said, nothing is threatened. This is all lies. Russian speakers are perfectly fine in Ukraine, okay? And uh, within several years, there have been a bunch of laws that wound up uh, did, uh, that wound up putting quotas on the Russian language in television, in radio. Uh, there was a draconian uh, language law in education, forcing forcing people to uh, speak Ukrainian in school, in elementary schools. Uh, that started alienating the Russian speakers, the Hungarian speakers. It started causing a lot of different problems. Polish speakers also. Um, and then eventually the law that John Kerry promised uh, was never going to be repealed, the law that was protecting all these different languages, was indeed stricken off the books. Uh, I did not see any comment by John Kerry, and I, something tells me that he did not, he has not been staying up, uh, you know, unable to sleep because his promises were broken. So uh, the language very much was an issue, and, and uh, it, was, it was very undemocratic what they did. The easy, the, the thing they should have done, the, the thing they should have done instead is say, listen, speak whatever language you want. Let's be united together against Russia. That should have been the much, that would have been the, the much more inclusive uh, message. Instead, they said, you know, uh, they started attacking the Russian language. Or, I mean, maybe the United States should have never interfered in another country's affairs. I mean, I don't, again, I don't, I don't know if, if the Ukrainian people, obviously they're, I, I'm against Russia invading uh, Ukraine, but I'm also against our country uh, ousting presidents that they don't like and and using other countries to to you know fight proxy wars for them to just advance our imperial interests. Um, again, I, I don't think that that the U the United States government truly cares about the sovereignty of Ukraine much in the same way that Russia does. I think both countries are using Ukraine. Of course, um, and, and I think it's sad. I think that the collateral damage are the Ukrainian people. They are the people that are living underneath uh, the corrupt government, and, and the same way that it's like in our country, the collateral 
the collateral damage is the poor and working class people in America right now who can't afford gas, who can't afford groceries. A report came out today that inflation is higher than it's been in 40 years. And the response from the White House and from our government that is entirely controlled by Democrats is just another excuse. Or in fact, they came out this morning again with the, oh, it's Putin's price hike. And it's like, I'm like, I'm sorry, but Vladimir Putin, you know, whatever your thoughts are on him, Vladimir Putin did not write the U.S. laws that, that are rigged uh, to allow corporations to, you know, maximize their profits at the expense of the American public. The Democrats, in collaboration with Republicans, wrote these laws uh, so, that are rigged in favor of the corporations. So I don't know how you can sit and just, you know, it's Putin's price hike. No, like it, you guys are in control of the government. You guys could do things to bring costs down for the American people, but you're not. You would rather scapegoat. And so one thing I wanted to talk about is, is you know, because anyone who brings up the neo-Nazi Astaf battalion um, – that is a, a part of uh, Ukraine's military. Um, you know, right now that the what you, it, it gets dismissed as oh that's Russian propaganda. But four years ago, the the U.S. corporate media, the New York Times, um, Time Magazine, uh, USA Today was warning about the neo-Nazi Astaf Battalion in Ukraine, and now you have these same media outlets that are calling it Russian propaganda or just dismissing it. Lev, why is the media all of a sudden normalizing the, the neo-Nazi Ostov Battalion? And can you talk a little bit about the origins of the Ostov Battalion and the danger it poses, uh, especially for the media to be normalizing uh, you know, a, a, a neo-Nazi group that is part of the Ukrainian army? Yeah, it's, it's insane because basically people are unable to keep two thoughts in their head at the same time. What Russia is doing in Ukraine is a war crime. Russia is committing war crimes. Russia also has neo-Nazis fighting for them, and that is evil, and uh, Putin should be tried for war crimes, and in any just world, he would be doing that, number one. Number two, some of the people who are fighting Putin are not good guys, and they also happen to be neo-Nazis, and they pose a danger. People are unable to, to like, it has to be a Disney movie, where all the good guys are on one side, all the good guys are on the other side. And the moment you say one thing, they say, oh, you're, you're, uh, you're putting Russian propaganda first. So, yeah, Putin is cynically using uh, the existence of neo-Nazis uh, in Ukraine as justification, quote-unquote, to invade for his war crime. That is wrong, and that's garbage, okay? And that's not, that's not a very difficult thing to say. At the same time, there are people in Ukraine who we should be siding with, and the people who we, but the people who we happen to be very much helping is this neo-Nazi group. So, uh, yeah, just because Putin is using them for propaganda doesn't make them any less real. You know, I mean, the, the, the Azov Battalion, they're not, they're not like Tinkerbell. Like, they don't need our faith. You know what I mean? It's like, if we stop believing them, they'll stop existing. That, that's not how they work. They're very real, and they are extremely dangerous, and the U.S. media admitted it for a long time, and now the U.S. media is, again, going the other way and saying, oh, no, they're not neo-Nazis. So let's, let's talk about this. So in 2013-2014, there, there, there was a street uprising against Yanukovych that we just talked about. Okay? The vast majority of the people who participated in them were just everyday, normal people who were anti-corruption, anti-Yanukovych, whatever. Okay? But the people who formed the core of the street fighting muscle the people who went against the riot police, the Yanukovych's, the brutal riot police of Yanukovych, were neo-Nazi gangs, okay? 
it wasn't college students uh, organizing armed groups. It was not neo-Nazi gangs, okay? They are the ones who were organized already. They were the ones who were trained in street fighting, and they were the ones who were not afraid to kill and not afraid to die. They formed the core of the street muscle that made it possible for the Maidan uprising to be successful, okay? And because of that, neo-Nazi groups and neo-Nazi leaders got uh, some pretty uh, big spots in the, in the Maidan uh, government. And this is also why, even though they formed a minority in Ukraine, a very minority in Ukraine, uh, several neo-Nazi leaders became uh, prominent figures in the Maidan uprising. And there's photos of John McCain and Chris Murphy and um, Victoria Nuland and John Kerry all posing with one of the main neo-Nazi leaders of Ukraine, Oleg Okay? And this is, I mean, and these are the people that this, and again, in 2012, just a little over a year beforehand, the New York Times, the BBC, and the EU all did stories because Tjachnibok's uh, group, Tjachnibok's party, Svoboda, won seats in the Ukrainian parliament. So all of these, the New York Times ran two stories saying he's an anti-Semite and a neo-Nazi. The European Union officially condemned the group. And, um, and BBC also covered it. And it's like the, the, the dangerous rise of the far right in Ukraine. That was in 2012. A year, year and a few months later, the guy who was in charge of this group was meeting the senior leaders of the American government and taking photos with them and shaking hands with them with no problem, okay? Because he became a useful part of the fight against Yanukovych. His people provided the street muscle. So that showed just how, just how the far right began co-opting the, uh, the Maidan uprising. So now, I have a question. Go ahead. Oh, I just had a, a, a question um, in regards to, to Minx, uh, the Minx Accords, which were a ceasefire. Um, it, it kind of, I don't want to make it seem like a tangent. So I guess what I'm asking is, we agree the Azov Battalion and Right Sector and other Banderite um, battalions are a part of the Ukrainian forces. And we know Putin cynically said, well, this operation is to protect the people of the Donbass region, and it's a denazification. Uh, that's that's that was his justification. Yes. Why do you think, in your estimation, Putin decided to invade Ukraine now, after minks had been being violated um, for years and years? What do you think caused the situation to like come to a head in 2022? And what action could have Russia taken? Uh, to protect the people of Donbass, or was that just not their job to protect the people of the Donbass who were being attacked by the government of Ukraine? What Putin has done is, is is a war crime. Okay, he's not protecting the people of Eastern Ukraine; he's killing them. Okay, and from the beginning, even from the beginning of this war, Russia has not hasn't given a damn about the people of Eastern Ukraine. They sent in psychopaths to control regions of Donbass, where they would just execute people just on a whim. Uh, there would be torture, kidnapping, extortion, theft, uh, just just the worst kinds of things. The problem is the the, Ukra- the battalions would do the exact same thing. So over the past, yeah, because we've heard that when you when you just brought that up, I've seen reports and I've seen journalists uh, who have who have documented war crimes committed by the Ostov battalion, where they're literally uh, tying people to poles, they're raping them, uh, murdering oh. women, like. Absolutely the most outrageous things you've ever seen. And these are people that the United States government is funding, 
right? Like this whole idea, like how are you bringing democracy to a country by normalizing and arming and funding a neo-Nazi battalion? Like, no, the, not like this is this is what's so insane to me is like, yeah, again, I, I disagree with with Putin invading Ukraine, but I disagree that you can you can sit and fund neo-Nazis and call it democracy like the United States is doing this for its own selfish imperialist reasons. And I don't I don't know why people can't see that. Well, the way I look at it is, look, is look, both sides are committing atrocities against the people of Donbass and have been doing for eight years while simultaneously weeping about the horrible things that are happening to the people of Donbass. It's disgusting. As somebody who reports on just human rights and the infringements, both sides have been doing horrific things. Both sides don't give a damn about the people of Donbass. The way I see it is, you know, we can do something about our side. You know, we can easily don't support the people who are committing the war crimes on our side, you know, while also sanction Russia against the people who are because they're, they're committing war crimes on the other side. It shouldn't be that difficult. But it's it's yeah, it's both sides have been destroying. I mean, that Donbass has just become this apocalyptic wasteland. I mean, you could just and, and it's just such a shame because they were the most like leave us alone and we'll leave you alone type of people imaginable they're the most working class like here just just as an example okay listen um where are both of you guys coming from where are you uh uh right now i'm in california okay so california let's say california names their sports teams okay uh you could say the chargers okay uh, you can you can say the Kings, okay? Different things of like that. I, I, you know, same thing in New Jersey and New York and Philly, okay? Now, there's a part in America, this very blue-collar part in America, where people name their sports team something like the Steelers or the Packers, okay? And there's only a few places in America where that would happen, okay? It's basically nobody would name it the, the Los Angeles Janitors or the New York, you know what I mean, the New York Cranberry Pickers. Nobody would say that. It's from places where blue-collar occupations are held as sacred, where their people have pride in what they do, okay? So, you know, Western, uh, West Virginia, Mountaineers, things like that. It's, um, you know, uh, Texas, uh, my, you know, the University of Texas mining schools, things like that. You, in Eastern Ukraine, that's exactly the same place. And you could tell a lot about a place by what they name their sports teams. Okay, like the sports team in Kharkiv, in my city, was Metalist, the metal workers. Okay, they didn't name them the dragons or the lions or the tigers. You know, they it's it's a city that celebrates blue collar, honest professions. In in Donetsk, uh, it's Shakhtar Donetsk. It's the miners of Donetsk. That's their soccer team. You know, so it's 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 this, the part that's the sense of all is these people are just truly working class, good people. Okay, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not angels. They're just, they're just decent people who really value hard work and who, uh, who just, just want to be left alone. They're the most, they're the least type of people. They have nothing in common really with Moscow or Kiev or Washington. And they're the people who've been just having war crimes committed against them over and over and over. And it's so cynical because like, for example, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, Started talking about how, you know, cluster bombs, this is awful. I can't believe, you know, Russia uses cluster bombs. And, and American media then starts saying, oh, that's awful. Yeah, you're right. Russia does use cluster bombs against the people of eastern Ukraine. And it is pretty fucking awful. You know what? You know who else uses cluster bombs against the people of Ukraine? 
the U.S.-backed Kiev government. And that's been noted several times, including by the New York Times earlier this uh, this year. So you have these, this, this river of crocodile tears about all the awful things that Russia is doing, and it is, while at the same time, we're arming and supporting people who are doing the exact same thing to the, to, to the people of Donbass. You know, it's, and then as far as why Putin went in, I have no idea. I mean, that's, anybody who claims they know uh, doesn't. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane what he has done. He has, he's killing, he's turning the people of Eastern Ukraine against him now. Because, I mean, he's bombing these, he's bombing this, my city, Kharkiv, uh, he's, and others. I mean, he's, he's like, it's, I, I really don't understand. The only thing I can possibly think of is that maybe he thought Ukraine was going to join NATO immediately, or maybe that uh, Zelensky was going to put some weapon system, uh, you know, right next to Russia. But I really, I, I just, I couldn't have, I couldn't imagine a worse thing that he's doing. I mean, it's not just, it's a war crime, and it also just happens to feel strategically idiotic. Like he's, 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 just, he's destroying the people of Eastern Ukraine to save them just as the Kiev-backed uh, forces are also destroying the people of Eastern Ukraine in order to, in the name of democracy. So right. how, how does this conflict end then? And like, what, what's the, the best case scenario for the people of the Donbass region? Is it that they will be their own sovereign entity? Uh, like what, again, there's not a lot of good guys in, in what's going on in, in this entire global conflict. Like what, the good people, what what's their best chance at peace and, and freedom and not having to worry about getting cluster bombed by Russia or Ukraine, but just to be given the ability to live their lives? Well, this war is a continuation of a war that goes not back to 2014. It doesn't go back to 91. It goes back at least 100 years. This is, this is a war that's going back for a very, very, very long time. Um, it's, its roots go deep. Uh, I don't think there's any way forward except through bloodshed. I mean, uh, Putin uh, is not going to back down. He staked his whole reputation, his everything, his his entire imperialist twisted vision on forcing on Ukraine being Russia's little little sister, which which is uh, super chauvinistic. It's super. I mean, I mean, right now they're prevailing. Like I I listen to some of Russian propaganda just in order to know what they're telling their people, and it's extraordinarily racist. It denies Ukrainians their own culture, their own language, their own heritage. Uh, it's this war of annihilation that is being fought by Moscow. And on the other side, we have the the the, the far right groups in Ukraine who have this veto by violence, who are opposed to any sort of peace also. So unfortunately, I mean, I really don't think there's anything in order except to settle in and, and, and see the bloodshed. And also there's the fact that there are, you know, there are people in America who see this as a way to bleed Russia, to weaken Russia. Um, there are also hardline forces on Russia who are in Russia who also see this as a good way to um, soften, to uh, shore up the country, uh, the country uh, to to raise their own form of fascism in the country. So it's 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 unfortunately you just have no real easy ways out. And I mean, it's every editor I write for asks me, you know, what's the outcome? And the outcome is blood. That's what the outcome is. Okay. But I mean, do you think garbage? But it's it's you know, I mean, the only for in my mind, the only path to peace is diplomacy like the only way to, to get to peace is you have to put the weapons down and you have to stop the bloodshed um do you think that that joe biden and the united states government 
has done anything uh, to actually promote uh, peace talks and, and diplomacy? Because, look, Putin is who Putin is. Putin's going to do what Putin's going to do. Uh, and, and right now, he, he uh, you know, again, I disagree with what Putin is doing. But I, I also disagree with the United States just pouring in billions of dollars in weapons because I think that's go- only going to prolong the war. Uh, like you said, they're trying to bleed Russia out. I, I believe they're using the Ukrainian people to fight this proxy war against uh, one of the, uh, the United States' biggest adversaries. Uh, and it's actually just it's, it's backfiring in a way because it's bringing Russia closer to China. And so, so now we're really seeing a real split from the West and the East, uh, and and I think it's 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 weakening the United States. You know, these sanctions that we put on Russia, they ended up hurting the working class in our country and in Russia and in Ukraine, like they always do. You know, these sanctions that they put on, they don't hurt the oligarchs. The oligarchs know how to move their money around. They know what they're doing. It always hurts the people at the bottom. We've seen that time and time again with sanctions. And so, I just. Is what is the United States doing? If you're going to be the bigger person, if it's about focusing on what on on our side, do you, is the United States? I haven't heard Joe Biden mention peace talks once. I haven't heard him mention diplomacy once. I, I see him making uh, uh, campaign videos uh, and photo ops at Lockheed Martin uh, next to Javelin missiles. And, and right now we're seeing the weapons manufacturers who. Uh, give about half their money to Republicans and half their money to Democrats. They hedge their bets like all big corporations do. And we're seeing the weapon, weapons manufacturers, they're the ones who are winning this war. While the Ukrainian people are losing, the working class people in, in America are losing, the working class people in Russia are losing too. Everyone is being saddled with higher prices. Uh, people are struggling, again, like I said earlier, to afford groceries, to afford gas. And you have the U.S. empire who's just I feel like every time they send another forty billion dollars worth of weapons, it's just putting more gasoline on the fire. We're yeah. not the bi- we're not the bigger people in the room. We are encouraging this war to continue. A- a- am I wrong? No, you're not. And I'm telling I'm telling you this one thing. When you mention working people, the other pe- the other work the working people that also very much hurt is working people in Western Europe because absolutely sanctions and they that's been a giant problem as soon as you mentioned that i wanted to mention that too uh especially in greece in italy in spain france uh there's this just this the sanctions on this has really has really hurt them too so that's important uh to say um i like i said i don't know what to tell you as far as as far as you know as far as the the weapons manufacturers that has been so disgusting because look why on earth are people in think tanks who are funded by these weapons manufacturers. Why, I mean, we're talking about for, fake news and disinformation. Why Thank you. is funded by Lockheed Martin through and works at the Atlantic Council or Brookings or whatever, okay? Why, when that person comes on the air, they obviously have a vested interest for this war to continue, yep. okay? Weapons manufacturers don't make weapons to sit on shelves. Yeah, and there's they, no profit in peace. They, they want this war to go, go on as long as possible. Which, yeah, which, I mean, listen, from a very, from a very logical business point of view, that's their, that's their job. They're a weapons manufacturer. They manufacture and sell weapons, okay? So the problem is these people in think tanks are presented as these uh, impartial scholars when they are not. So right. why are you not putting somebody who's, who's, you know, being funded by weapons manufacturer? Why are you not putting that? Why are you not disclosing it when you run their op-eds? When you, when you have them on television. If you see people from a think tank, the first thing you should be doing is seeing where those people work and who funds their think tank. That should be the number one thing.
that you yep. should. But it's the same reason to to bring our conversation full circle. It's the same reason that the corporate media they went from four years ago warning about the dangers of the Ostov uh, neo-Nazi battalion in Ukraine to now dismissing it because the the corporate media itself has a vested interest in the status quo, in in these endless That's wars continuing, important. and in this corrupt system continuing. Remember the weapons manufacturers, the the big pharmaceutical companies, all these corrupt. Uh, businesses, they're they're putting ads on on you know when you're watching CNN, you're seeing ads from from these giant corporations. So so you're absolutely right. I mean, they should tell the truth about who who's funding these think tanks, and and you know you'll see. But that's not what happens. I mean, you'll see even on MSNBC, they'll have the CEO of Lockheed Martin on, and he'll be talking about the war. I mean, they're, they're shameless at this point, and and that to me it shows that how. How corrupt and complicit the media, as well as the big business and uh, our politicians, are in all of this, and and both Democrat and Republican politicians. And in many ways, uh, as someone who is a, used to be a lifelong Democrat, and now I, I've, I vote third party and consider myself, you know, an independent socialist. You know, the Democrats are sometimes even more dangerous than the Republicans because, at least with the Republicans, I know they're corrupt because yeah. they tell me they are. They admit they're it. A little more they're, they're, they're very open about being pro-war and pro-big business. But the Democrats, you know, they, they talk about democracy and equality and they Absolutely. sedate us with lots of platitudes. And then they turn around and, and, and are owned by the exact same corrupt big business interests as the Republicans are owned by, uh, including these weapons manufacturers. So you're absolutely right. The entire system stinks. And again, when it, if we get back to the people in Ukraine you know, and, and the working class people throughout the country, they're the ones who are paying the price of this. By paying the price of these oligarchs who are, are essentially these two you know, super nuclear superpowers who are using the people and pitting all of us against each other while they're just busy enriching themselves and enriching their corporate donors. And it's disgusting. Absolutely. And what you say about both parties is so crucial. I mean, that's how I just I, I started seeing you on Twitter. Uh, just what you're saying. It's, it cannot be said enough. Now, just as a, as a quick thing, just to, to focus on the Azov part and the media. OK, this has been insane because, listen, at the same time, it, it's been I mean, talk about gaslighting at the same time as we say that white supremacy is an existential threat in the world. We also say, OK, but ignore the Azov battalion. OK, so right. very quickly. Here's here's the story on Azov, okay? After the you And then we have a caller. We should get to our caller. Okay. Do you wanna do what do you want to do first then? I'll let you get your story in and then we'll go straight into the caller. Okay. When when the in twenty fourteen when Russia started backing backing the separatists in, in Donbass, Ukraine had no army, it was decimated. So the neo-Nazi groups that provided the fighting forces during the uprising started forming battalions. Azov became the most successful one, okay? It took a while for West. I was one of the very first ones to start warning about Azov. After a while, even, even reporters from USA Today, Daily Beast, the New York Times, everybody started acknowledging because they were so in-your-face neo-Nazis, okay? I mean, you would see articles like, Ukrainian battalion contains Nazis, you know, how many Nazis is the U.S. training in Ukraine? Those were articles from the USA Today and the Daily Beast, okay? So this group started becoming bigger and bigger, and they're excellently organized. And what they started doing, and this is the most dangerous part of all, the vision is that Azov would be a leader in the transnational white supremacy movement, okay? And this is the most dangerous part of all. Today's neo-Nazis see themselves as part of a global 
stand of the white race. Okay, they truly feel that this is the white race is being eliminated. They see themselves as being part of this global battle. Okay, and what you have is a battalion, a regiment now, they just call it the battalion because that's how uh, they became known, um, who is excellent at networking. They don't just do things like, uh, like battlefield training. They have neo-Nazi concerts. They have fight clubs. They have exhibitions. They, they network with... Um, they network with other neo-Nazis. In 2018, the FBI arrested uh, several California neo-Nazis for training in Ukraine with Azov. You'd think that this would be like top stories, but nobody looks at it. And um, so this is something And we're that, funding it, right? The United States government oh, is funding and arming funding. a Nazi battalion in Ukraine. It's outrageous to me. And people say, oh, it's so small. Well, first of all, it's like, well, how many neo-Nazi battalions does it take for you to get worried? You know what I mean? <laughs> then there's people who say Zelensky is Jewish. So, and it's like saying, well, America elected Barack Obama, so racism ended. And so racism ended now, didn't it? Okay, we are no longer a racist country, and race and and uh, you know white supremacist shootings don't happen because we had a black president. Congratulations. I mean, the amount of denial that is done now. I mean, fi- the Financial Times, which is the most disgusting thing, they. They interviewed, they gave, they gave, they platformed uh, Andrei Bilecki, who's the one who founded the Azov Battalion. He ran the neo-Nazi group that Azov came out of, okay? This guy is, I mean, he was just the things he would say about just, just leading the white races of the world in a fight against the Jewish-led Untermenschen. It's just... and yeah, in the Financial Times, the same group that weeps about the dangers of white supremacy platformed him with no problem. The BBC and the Guardian, these now they're starting to deny it. First, they said that Azov was, you know, aligned with neo-Nazis, had neo-Nazi roots, I guess. You know what I mean? Like a like a like a rock band that had like you know blues back, a blues back. <laughs> okay. Then they started saying that you know what. Uh, you know, but they used to be neo-Nazis, but they changed. And again, it's like, did you just ask them, like, what did they go to boarding school? Like, w- what did they do to change? And and this is an, I mean, and I'm seeing as somebody who like, I feel bad laughing, but I, it's it's so dangerous what they're doing. Yeah. They're normalizing hate and bigotry and evil. They're normalizing these things, and then you're as you say, it's transnational. We saw that there were some people at the Charlottesville back in 2017 who had trained with the the Ostov Battalion. So the the movement is spreading, and and, and we're fun- our government is funding it. Like that is not democracy. Funding Nazi battalions is the exact opposite of democracy. And they're it's not dangerous, and they're not. And listen, you know, the people in Ukraine who should be working with the people who are like LGBT leaders who risk their lives. Okay, from because they're beaten and stabbed by people who by members of Azov and the, yeah, or working class. You know, yeah. there's there's tons of working class yeah. lefties in, in in Ukraine that wants a, a better country uh, for themselves and wants yeah. a sovereign nation, just like there are here. But again, you know, people don't give money to to lefty organizations and to socialist organizations because those organizations are a threat to big business, right? Which at the end of the day, that's who's controlling this. And that's who's calling the shots is these large corporations. And we, you know, if you even go back and this, I mean that when Hitler first came up, there was, there were American corporations and European corporations who supported him. Lord. Absolutely. And so that's, you know, the, this, this marriage between big business and fascism is really, I mean, I hate to say this, but this is as American as apple pie. I mean, 
it's that's what corporations do. They they go, gravitate towards the right because they know that the the far right is not a threat to their money and is not a threat to capital. Absolutely. And that's all these that's all these big businesses care about. They don't care about the poor and the working class. They don't care about democracy. They don't care about everyone having health care. They don't care about peace. They care about profits. They care about their bottom line. So if they can fund an ally and and help support far right groups that that are going to protect the interests of capital, big business is going to do that over and over again and then they'll turn a blind eye or the, or they'll play dumb like they're doing now. Yeah, I read a publication who they went from being neo-Nazis four years ago to now they're just calling them far right or yeah. alt-right and, and, and trying to uh, whitewash the Nazi element of the Ossoff Battalion. And then we see that the same uh, Nazi uh, – the, the same uh, Nazi symbol that they have on the uniforms was the same Nazi symbol that one of the, the, the mass shooters just recently in America had. You know, And it's like when are people going to wake up and look and see like the, the American white supremacist – uh, neo-Nazi had the same used the same Nazi symbol as the Nazis that were funding in Ukraine. Like that's wrong. If you stand against white supremacy, then stop funding it abroad. Yeah, and stop funding the biggest. Stop funding the only you, the only fighting force that's in an, an official part of of, of a solid of a sovereign nation. I mean, yeah, it's it's and there's so many people you can support in Ukraine. There's so many good people who are not neo-Nazis. The vast majority of the country is not neo-Nazis. The vast majority of the country are fine, good people. Support them, you know. Right. But we happen to be like we happen to just always, you know what it is? It's just like how in the 1980s the Soviet Union did horrible things during an invasion of Afghanistan. And we supported Osama bin Laden and the founding members of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban just because they happened to fight against the Soviet Union. You know, I mean, it's it's this is what we do. We enter into a country and it's like it's almost like, you know, like everybody knows a person in high school who says, you know, all I want to do is date a nice person. But everyone I date turns out to be a psychopath. And you're like, yeah, that's because you're picking them. You yeah. know, you're exactly. the you're the commonality. You're the one. That America goes into a country and says, you know what, we want to have the most democracy-loving group, but yet everybody we we'll end up partnering with is an extremist uh, psychopath. And that's what we're, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Well, well I'd love to get to our, get to our, our caller. caller. Yeah. Uh, armchair, you are in the queue. If you unmute yourself, we would love to hear your question or your comments. Um, hey there. Uh, thank you for taking my call, and thank you for having this discussion. I appreciate I really appreciate it. It's really interesting to hear from Lev, who obviously knows a lot about these issues. Um, I guess I just wanted to make two comments. Uh, one was regarding the military aid at the moment being provided to Ukraine. So I do agree with the point, um, I think it was Lev that made it, that, um, yeah, you know, there is obviously a conflict of interest when you have somebody who, uh, I mean, not obvious, but uh, very possible conflict of interest when you have people and think tanks funded by, um, you know, weapons contractors and, um, you know, weapons manufacturers. So, you know, listening to them is not the best option, but at the end of the day, it's not just them they that uh, advocate for this, right? It's also, uh, I mean, it's just regular Ukrainians to to a large extent. I mean, if you look at the polls, um, I don't remember exactly um, the name of the polling organization that did it, but I mean, there were a few polls a few weeks ago that basically show pretty 
across the board, um, Ukrainians want to keep fighting. Um, so my my thought is, I think in this situation when a country is facing an onslaught, um, you know, a, a, a very tough opponent in in the face of Russia, and they want to keep fighting, I think they there 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 is an argument to be made that it it could it's it's a morally right thing to give them the ability to to defend their territory. Um, so I just want to hear what you think about that. Um, I'm very torn by it, and I've said this before. I was on Democracy Now! saying this in other places, whereas when people ask, should we arm Ukraine, I really can't say no. And that's even though the logical part, I understand the putting in the weapons, the part of me that watches my city get bombed apart and knowing knowing that it's happening just cannot say no. Uh, so I'm, you know, I try to be as honest as I can. So... I'm very torn. It's what you said is a really good point, and I'm very torn. And I don't know. The only thing I can say is just be honest about where I am, and that's where I totally understand the one side of it. And I, but then again, I look and see what's happening in Kharkiv, and I'm like, you know, when I see the people who are risking their lives to stop the the, the invasion, and it's, it's, yeah. I, the only thing I can say is I'm, I'm extraordinarily torn about this. Well, I, I have a question that for you, Lev. What? could be done if, if you do say we want to send arms or send some money something to help these ukrainians fight for their sovereignty what could the united states at least be doing differently to make a, make sure that those arms aren't ending up in the wrong hands because it seems like a lot of the 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 javelin missiles that get sent over a lot of the the big military aid is not ending up in the hands of everyday Ukrainians who are, right. are fighting for themselves, I think they're ending up in, in the wrong hands. So yeah. how how could the United States make sure that if they do want to help Ukraine fight for its sovereignty, that it is not going to end up in the hands of people that after this conflict is done might be used and turned on people like the Roma people or other ethnic minorities or Jewish people or gay people or, or, or. Or and any- to piggyback really quick off what Rob said, Rob brings up a great point there. Uh, the chief, uh, the president of Interpol, uh, just came out last week and said that he was very concerned that uh, already a lot of these weapons were ending up in, the, in criminal hands was the words he used. Yeah. Uh, and this is the president of Interpol. Uh, and we also have uh, just last week, we also saw that some of these javelins are already ending up on the black market. Oh, <laughs> so, absolutely. you know, so so what Rob brings up a great point. The, these weapons aren't necessarily ending up in the hands of the people who want to, you know, who want sovereignty. Absolutely. And the only other thing I would add with what our caller said is, you know, one thing that really concerned me when this all started happening is, um, you know, and, and he, you know, he argues, well, it's a time of war, so we have to do this. But we've seen even in our country when, when our government says, well, it's a time of war, so that means it's a time to take people's freedoms away. We saw that with the Patriot Act. You see this often with, with authoritarian corrupt governments where they use crisis to, 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 to take away people's rights. And what uh, Zelensky did is he uh, – uh, all opposition parties were banned immediately, uh, which I to- and, and they were banning some leftist socialist parties, which I totally disagree with. And also not even just banning uh, opposition political parties that were going to give people uh, a different thought or or tell people maybe this war isn't winnable. Uh, maybe having all these weapons pouring in is only going to add fuel to the fire and only going to provoke Putin even more. Uh, you know, and, and, and the last thing I'll say is he also silenced – he also did uh, suppressed information. Yes. Where he just – he has only – there's only one news network now. 
Yeah. And so, like, if you're really doing the right thing, if you really stand by this, this quote unquote democracy that the U.S. is bringing to Ukraine, which I, again, how can you, the United States bring democracy to Ukraine when we don't have democracy in our own nation? We have an oligarchy. And I feel like we're turning Ukraine, going to turn Ukraine into a vassal state, into another oligarchy. Uh, just that it's under the American interest, not Russian interest. And so right, that, that, if you're doing the right thing, why would, you, why would you take away people's information? Why are you banning all parties? Everything Zelensky's doing is telling me he's not doing the right thing. No, More information he, is better, right? Like, no, he has, and, and also the guy before him, Poroshenko, has. The one thing I'll push back around, I, I promise you we're not turning Ukraine into a – we are not going to turn Ukraine into a U.S.-controlled oligarchy. That already has happened in 2014. Uh, you know what I mean? Ever since the Maidan revolution, ever since the Maidan uprising, I mean, uh, Ukraine has been run like a, uh, you know, like a colony, basically, by, by, by America. That I can promise you already. I mean, yeah, but that's what's going to happen when we're putting, we're giving them even more money and oh, we're I mean, giving them more weapons. That the, the United States' intention is to basically use Ukraine the same way it uses Israel in the Middle East. Oh yeah, but what I'm saying is Ukraine has already been like this is just this is just firming it up. But since 2014, like I said, we've already been like I mean, I mean, there's a reason you know Biden would say, oh, I talked more to Poroshenko than I talked to my wife. Yeah. I mean, Biden was basically like is the way he was addressing Ukraine. It was like he was running it like a colonial uh, overseer, you know. Uh, it's when he was vice president. So yeah, it's I mean, it it very much is turning Ukraine into into a puppet of America. And do you think that's a good thing? No, I don't think it's a good thing at all. I think I think that. I think that Ukraine no longer has any left movements. Um, that is very, very true. I mean, that has been eliminated very much uh, starting in 2014. And I think it's I think it's really bad that America is saying that we're gonna we're gonna provide. And, and there's just this arrogance in it about this, like almost like we're gonna teach these wavered children about democracy. You right. know, it's right. just been, it's it's just so like pretentious and just yep. just. You know what I mean? It's, it's it's like it's the same thing as the people who are like, we're going to teach these savages the way of the white man. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think you really brought up a good point earlier in the show when you talked about the blue collar workers in the Donbass, and you talked about how proud they are of of being working class and of you know being steel workers and mine workers, uh, and but then they're confronted by this arrogance and elitism from from Kiev. Who doesn't understand the working class? Well, I would – when you described that, I immediately thought about the United States, and I thought about all of the people that I've met in the last four years since I really started my political awakening. A lot of the blue-collar people who are – which a lot of people don't realize, there's a lot of working-class people even in the Rust Belt in states like Pennsylvania who deep down, they're populists. They're socialists. They want, uh, they want to have – they want a government that is – democratic that works for them they don't want to be ruled by big business they want to have good wages they want to have health care but they look and see these kind of smug neoliberal elites who look down on them you know these oh these God. people from california or new york and, and 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 a lot of liberals and i i used to be a liberal myself I, and i didn't get the big disconnect and now i see it it's like 
people who work hard, they don't want to be talked down to. They don't want to be looked down to. And they especially don't want politicians in Washington who are selling them out to big business. And a lot of, a lot of the jobs, manufacturing jobs, started getting shipped overseas in the Clinton administration when oh. there were trade agreements like NAFTA. Where yep. the, where, and it wasn't just Clinton. It was also the CEOs who sold out their workers and were like, forget it. We're going to go you know, make the iPhone in, in, in China because it's cheaper. And, and we're going to get rid of all these great blue-collar jobs. They did the same thing with the auto industry. And so that, you know, when you have politicians that sell the people out over and over again, the working class is done with it and they can see through the lies in ways that what I would call liberal elites, they don't see through it. And they're actually cheering for this kind of unequal society that, that, that Western capitalism has now created. And uh, to kind of bring our conversation full circle, again, I, I would say that a lot of Granted, there's always going to be some, some, some white supremacists, some racists in every society. But, and we've always had them in America. You know, this country, in many, it was founded on racism. But we've seen a resurgence in, 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 in neo-fascism in this country in the last 10 years. And we've seen it in Europe. And, and I would say that the reason is, is because of the failure of neoliberal capitalism in the West to actually meet the basic needs of the people. And you've got a lot of poor working class people who are feeling desperate. They are feeling like there's no solution coming from Washington. So they gravitate towards a far right extremist solution that and, and, and doing so. And of course, race plays a part. But what these people don't realize is there's no there's no solution for the working class on the far right because the far right is aligned with big business and is not aligned with with, you know, getting workers higher wages and with bringing health care. So. But that for me is the sad part is that that and I would say that is why we're seeing this rise in, in fascism is because of the failure of the neoliberal elites to 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 have an economy that works for everyone. And they continue to sell the people out. Yeah. And the people on, and the people on the far right offer a very, they channel that anger. They're really good at channeling that anger. So they 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 take it and, and that's how, and that's what they get their that's where they get their recruits from. You should I just put in the chat. You should take a you should take a look at the book that just came out, Nazi Billionaires. It's about how the German the German corporations were just through and through Nazis and continue and continue uh, harboring it. It's it's phenomenal. So Lev, I did just want to kind of re-ask the question: If there is no way. For us to know that our aid is going to end up in the, quote, right hands, and it will end up in the hands of people who I think we can all agree are dangerous with their ideology, with how organized they are, with how much governmental power they've been afforded. What's what's kind of the best case scenario? What 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 do we do? Because to me, I don't think Ukraine, quote, winning this war is going to necessarily be a, a huge win for the people in the Donbass region. And I don't think Russia winning this war. I don't even know what Russia, quote, winning this war would even look like, but I don't think the people uh, of the Donbass region would be cheering and feeling like, okay, we're finally safe. So, no, they're what, not, they will not be. So, so what, I guess let me ask, what does each side, quote, winning look like? And, and what side winning would kind of lead to the better outcome for the people of the Donbass? Neither, the one thing that has been established, and I mean, I, I hate to, I hate to keep being, you know, uh, saying this, but the one thing that has been established is that both sides don't give a damn about the people of Donbass. I mean, both sides have been slaughtered. So um, I don't know what such an outcome would be, but the the Ukraine, I'll put it this way. Here's what I think the amazing part of Ukraine is it is diverse. And what I would love to see is a Ukraine where America supports, first of all, 
doesn't support the far-right groups, and also because we give so much aid to Ukraine, we should be able to tell Zelensky and the government, you know, take these battalions and disband them, okay? People say, oh, you know, why is everybody focused on these battalions? They're only a couple. Okay, fine, good, disband them. That's the first thing we should be doing, okay? Two, we should absolutely be monitoring where the weapons are going because from the beginning, uh, if you look at the articles by the Daily Beast in 2015, it has been absolutely clear that the people have no idea who they're training, okay? The Americans there have no idea who they're training, okay? And um, so we are just not paying attention at all. Uh, the other thing we should be absolutely monitoring is people in America, white supremacists in America, who go and train overseas, okay? Which, again, we're not really doing that uh, because you're going to have people who go there and get training and who are going to come back and do damage, and that's the same thing on the Russian part of it. There are neo-Nazis who train with Russia, the Russian-backed separatists. And, for example, there's a group that bombed a Swedish uh, refugee shelter several years ago, um, the, a group of Swedish neo-Nazis. So that's absolutely, that's absolutely what we should be doing immediately with that. As far as, like I said, I just, you know, there are people in Ukraine who are good with democracy, who want to see democracy. And unfortunately, you know what I mean? And, and, and when, we, when we're supporting the Azov Battalion, we're not supporting democracy. We're supporting neo-Nazis, okay? Just because they fight Putin doesn't make them any less neo-Nazi. And they're not good for Ukraine. And you can condemn Russia's war crimes while at the same time not want to enable and empower neo-Nazis. And here we have our media, our, our political establishment, just completely go and just say, you know what? No, they're not neo-Nazis anymore. They're fine. So uh, I don't know if that's much of a solution, Rob, but unfortunately, yeah. well, that's... I guess the other thing I'm thinking, too, is like by continuing to give arms to to these neo-Nazi battalions, is it in other ways making it harder for Ukraine to be free of American influence, of Russian influence? Like if the people, the good people of Ukraine who don't want corruption, they don't want to be run by the United States, they don't want to be run by Russia... In order for them to a, a conceivable reality in which they are the ones that take the reins of power and they take control of their country and they say, we're not going to tolerate Azov Battalion and right sector. We're not going to keep praising Stefan Bandera. We're not going to be allowing the Russians to do what they want with this. Do those people stand a chance if we continue to funnel money towards people that and, and, and arms towards people that are going to be actively against that message? No, because the ones that we're empowering right now are people like Azov who uh, happen to be very much against democracy, you know? So, yeah, that's a very true point. Sorry, I've, I've, again, I'm not trying to make it seem like I, I want one side or another to win. I just, it's it's trying to wrap my head around what is the best possible outcome. And, and the frustrating thing is, as an American, I know that my government isn't going to be acting in good faith for the best the interests of, of people in Ukraine, that's not in any way, shape, or form what happens. Every decision the United States makes is a calculated decision on how to increase their wealth or their influence or their power. And it, it, to, to think otherwise, I think at this point, we've had more than enough data to say they'd be foolish. And it, it seems like, again, can you talk briefly about, I know, uh, I think it was uh, Donetsk and Lushenk that were talking about trying to become their own sovereign entity that is not part of Russia or Ukraine, but its own thing. Is there a slim possibility that maybe the global community, the anti-war communities of the world can come together and fight so that there, there might be sovereignty and that might be uh, a new channel for peace for the people in Eastern Ukraine? 
Yeah, I think what what if Ukraine Ukraine cannot stay together if it just focuses on uh, you know having solely the Ukrainian language, so Stepan Bandera, the new Nazi, um, uh, the Nazi collaborator worship. It cannot be like that. Ukraine needs to have a sort of regional autonomy for everybody. Okay, and and that goes along with the people who you know the regions where have Ukrainian speakers and whatever they they should speak the language that's there. So, I mean, I hope that it's, you know, the best way to fight back against Putin would be to have an actual democratic Ukraine without neo-Nazi battalions, with uh, diversity, with the ability to, cho- to choose. Uh, but that would require an enormous effort. And sadly, like I said, there's a whole lot of people, including weapons manufacturers and the think tanks who are, that are funded by them, that, that are not interested in this. Um, the the only way to do this, I think, would be to bring in international like peacekeeping forces. I don't think anybody's interested in, in doing that. Nobody nobody's going to put people in there. We'll put weapons in there, but we're not going to put uh, peacekeepers in there. So, uh, you know, I think it, I think it should be, but I don't see the will of the international community at all towards it. I think it's just, uh, you know, at least in the American point of view, I think it's just just pouring in more weapons and pouring in more money. Uh, I, like I said, the, the furthest thing from the American establishment's mind is what the people of Donbass want. And yep. the people, it is the farthest thing from their mind. And, and it's that, that's been the most reprehensible thing to me. And I think that my audio is back. My audio went out for a minute, but I, I fixed it. Uh, I think that's all anyone wants. I think that the working class should should. This is why we need to build solidarity so that people can 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 have their sovereignty and they can be free and they can you know lead their lives the way they want to and so they're that we're not living under the rule of these oligarchs who again are are using uh ukraine to enrich themselves in the same way that the oligarchs here are 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 using the poor and working class to enrich themselves and i think you know there's a lot of like rob said you know i don't trust our government to do the right thing for the people of ukraine and because if you look in our government's track record they don't do the right thing for the people of our country either. You know, there are we have 140 million Americans who are either poor or low income. We have a, a, a homelessness crisis right now that is getting worse and worse by the year, by the month. And 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 the government d- won't do anything to stop it. Uh, and so, you know, that at, at its core, you know, the working class needs to free itself from the chains of this oligarchic rule. Uh, and and I and and that is you know why we have to build solidarity uh, and and like you said support the people in Ukraine who are not part of neo-Nazi battalions and who don't want to live under you know U.S. imperial rule or or Russian imperial rule. You know we need to see a solidarity amongst the global working class. And That's so you so know pro- that that is the only way that change has ever happened in the in the history of our planet is when the working class comes together and fights for their you know their their liberation. Well, let me put it this way. I mean, what you said is crucial because, listen, we, here we talked about three basic groups of people, the working class, the oligarchs, and the neo-Nazis. The neo-Nazis are working together very as they've never been before. They are truly organizing across the world, okay, in, 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 their, uh, in their goals, in their just cooperation, in everything. It's terrifying, but it's happening. Uh, the oligarchs very much know how to play together. They may seem to have opposing interests, like Democrats and Republican-backed parties, but they certainly are uh, organized and cooperating with each other. 
the working class needs to start doing the same. That's right. No, that's right. Couldn't agree more. Armchair, I know you're still in the caller queue. You said earlier you had two questions. Was there an additional thing you wanted to ask, or, or did you get everything said? Um, tr- yeah, I'm trying to remember what I wanted to ask. Um, I guess one thing, um, yeah, like just a comment, and this doesn't apply to Lev necessarily because he did mention that there are Nazis in, you know, fighting on the side of Russia. But just uh, so full disclosure, I do. I do agree with the point being made by, uh, you know, in, independent journalists that there is a level of whitewashing going on in the mainstream media when it comes to Azov, like the fact that they, you know, they're no longer called, you know, neo-Nazi or even far right in some publications. And that's, and that's wrong, of course. Um, but at the same time, when I read independent, a lot of independent journalists, like the ones that are on the left, I oftentimes see a hyper focus on this issue um, and then no mention of the groups that Lev mentioned in the beginning um, that are fighting on behalf of Russia, which are Wagner Group and the Russian Imperial Movement Group, which mm-hmm. are which are neo-Nazis, far right, you know, whatever you want to call them. Um, and I just see some people like, especially on Twitter, like constant barrage of these photos of the uh, neo-Nazi insignia um, from, you know, Azov, like the photos of Azov. um, Like, and again, that's, you know, this should be reported on, but I think one, it should be put into context because um, I know there are, there are people in Russia that I know uh, that are looking at this issue from their perspective and they're fully propagandized by the Russian media, which uses this and blows this out of proportion. Um, and when you talk to people, they don't know that it's a couple of thousand in the military, which is, again, it's not zero, which is ideal. It's 2000. It's bad. But when you speak to some Russian people and some people, even in the West who, you know, who follow, you know, Russian media, some Russian media, they have this view that it's way more than that. They have this view that the that the problem is ingrained to the extent that um, you know, like half half of the people in Ukraine are neo Nazis or something like this. And when you provide them with information on, well, actually, equal amount of people are fighting on. Russian behalf, equal amount of neo-Nazis are, are, fight, are fighting on the Russian side and war fighting since 2014 on the Russian side, they're sort of dumbfounded. And I think it's just, I think it's very important to put numbers in context. I think it's yeah. important to say, yes, there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine and, and they should be defeated. But I think it's important to also not like to be very precise how big the problem is. So I, was... I would say my two points to that. One, I all neo-Nazis, all Nazis are bad people. And if I could snap my finger and they would all disappear, I would snap my fingers in an instant. I think one of the, the things, especially on the left and on Twitter, is there is this constantly trying to prove to people that, like, no, these, these Azov people are bad people. Because there is a portion of the country that just believes that they're inherently well they're not that bad oh they're just freedom fighters and i think for me 
I would say if we were funding and arming neo-Nazis in Russia, I would be just as vocal about that. But right now, a lot of the money and the weaponry that is coming from the United States is not ending up in the hands of Russian neo-Nazis. It's Ukrainian neo-Nazis. So I think that's why it's been a little more visible. Uh, and the other thing I would say, too, is it's not just the numbers for me. I, I, there was a video I saw of Zelensky. I think he was in the eastern part of Ukraine, and he was talking about the, the need to, to enforce the Minsk Accords and to, to tell these people, like, you need to stop attacking your fellow Ukrainians. I am the president of Ukraine. And basically, he was threatened with violence, like, okay, if you, if you try to force us to stop, there will be consequences. So to me, it's not just the number. Uh, I think it's how organized the Azov Battalion has been and how much kind of sway they've get, they've been given by the government, or at least from what I have heard and my understanding is they are very much more emboldened. And so even if you say, well, the actual number of neo-Nazis is low, they're also the ones that have been training the people who are coming from other countries saying, yes, we're going to fight the Russians. My understanding was it was largely the Azov Battalion that were training these people, getting them up to speed. And so their institutional power is, in my opinion, greater than just the looking at the small number. And the fact that they feel emboldened to stand up to the president of their country, to Zelensky, and say, what are you going to do about it? That's what makes me think it's not just such a small problem of, well, it's a couple rogues here and there, but the, the, the ability to stand up. Yeah, and also I would add with what Rob said, you know, the corporate media is not, um, you know, it, it, the, the reason it's an issue is because the corporate media is flat out lying. And, and four years ago, they were neo-Nazis. And now, uh, because the, the interests align with U.S. imperial interests, all of a sudden they're not neo-Nazis and they're trying to whitewash them. That is why it's an issue. And, and what Rob said about uh, they're institutionalized is very true. Uh, I, I think one of the most embarrassing moments for Zelensky and for the United States and for Joe Biden was when uh, Z Zelensky showed up to 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 give a, 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 a talk to Greece, to to the to the parliament of Greece. And he brought an Astov battalion uh, member with him to address the Greek parliament. And the uh, one of the representatives from Greece had to apologize and said, quote, well, we did not invite, uh, for the record, we did not invite a neo-Nazi. We invited Zelensky and he brought a neo-Nazi with him. So, <laughs> you know, this has gotten way too out of control. You know, you were talking about, oh, there's only 2,000. Funding, if there was only five, it's funding five neo-Nazis is wrong. I don't, Americans don't want their tax dollars going to fund neo-Nazis. Like, well, I don't know why. No, 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 I, I, never said, I never said, like, I never said. Yeah, I, but, but the problem, do you see what I'm saying? Like, the media isn't out there like trying to cover for, for and whitewash the Nazis on Russians on Russia's side. Who, you know what I mean? Well, to be, to be frank, they're not the even they're not even talking about the Russians, the, the Nazis on the Russian side either. To be honest, um, but I see your point. I see your point. I understand your point. I, I just I just my point was that like I agree with everything you say. My point was just to like I wish the independent media also sometimes brought up. Uh, Russian, you know, Nazis fighting on the Russian side. That's all. Well, uh, and I, I, I think ahead. that I think the main crux, though, is that the independent media. Again, we're not financed by corporations. We don't have an interest in the status quo, and, and we see the United States government for what it is as the most corrupt government in the world. And we see what they do to the poor and working class in our country. We see that they are standing in the way of liberation and dignity and justice for all people, not only in our country but abroad as well. Remember, the United States has over 800 military bases around the world. 
Russia and China have nowhere near that. We have I think, 10 our military budget is 10 times that of, of all of the next 10 nations combined. So we are the empire that rules the world. And the majority of our country does not see that because they are propagandized not to see that from Fox News, from MSNBC. So the job of independent media is to expose the corruption of, of U.S. imperialism. And, and yes, again, I, I have said it from the beginning. I do not stand with Vladimir Putin. I do not stand with Russia. I stand with the working class in Ukraine and Russia and all over the world that is being oppressed by these oligarchs. But all I've seen from liberals, from Democrats, from Joe Biden is this narrative that the, the most evil actors in the world are Russian oligarchs. When Russia has a fraction of the oligarchs that America does. We have the most oligarchs in the world by no, I mean, far. Yeah, okay. I mean, so, you, you, obviously there are more oligarchs because U.S. is larger. You know, the U.S. economy yeah, is larger. So this narrative but, that like the Russian oligarchs are, are, are standing in the way of healthcare and they're the biggest problem in the world. Russian well, they, I mean, they are, problem, I mean, I mean, I mean, but they're nowhere near the problem that the American oligarchs are. And so we're just trying to bring some some um, context and some nuance to the discussion because you don't get that in corporate media because corporate media is owned by oligarchs. Right. I mean, there's there's six corporations own all of 90 percent of the media we consume. Uh, and and so when you have a handful of billionaires and corporations who own our media, you're not presented any different narrative. So. I would say the only reason independent media was pointing out that the neo-Nazi Ostov battalion is still a neo-Nazi battalion is because the media was trying to whitewash that. And if, if we were giving weapons to Russian Nazis, I think the independent media would do the same thing, like Rob pointed out. I think that was a great point that Rob made. If thank I may, you so much for your call. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, if I may jump in for a second. Yeah, I agree. Listen, here's what's happening right now. The most powerful groups in America are whitewashing this neo-Nazi battalion, okay? We have, if we, we had 300 neo-Nazis march in, in, um, in Charlottesville, and we, the entire country spent a year being obsessed with it, okay? So, yeah, Azov is only 2,000, whatever. I mean, they also have a very sizable uh, street unit, but still, yeah, but it's, if, if any other country in the world had a neo-Nazi formation that's armed forces, okay, uh, it would be all over the news. That's right. I, I think that I, I very much agree with the speaker that the Russian neo-imperialist movement is, is dangerous. I point that out as much as I can. In fact, if you look at a lot of my articles, you'll have half the people complaining that I talk about Ukrainian neo-Nazis and half the people complaining I talk about <laughs> You know, um, That means you're being fair and balanced. Exactly. But I mean, I think the problem is, the problem is we don't have the media and the establishment whitewashing neo-Nazis in Russia. Correct. They're, the ones they're doing is Ukraine. And this also, by the way, includes Jewish groups and groups fighting anti-Semitism. And I mean, this is, you know, a different story, but I'll tell you this. I'll, I have conversations with Jewish groups, like, you know, like big name organizations as opposed to fight anti-Semitism and tell them, you know, how come you don't even have as much as a press release on the Azov Battalion? And I would have this, you know, for years, you know, starting in 2014, asking them. And you know what they say? They would say things like, well, you know what? We're very tough on Jeremy Corbyn. Okay. Uh, and I get to the point where it'd be like, uh, I wrote about this in the foreword. Um, it got to the point where I'd be like, okay, interesting. Could you please tell me how many battalions Jeremy Corbyn is currently fielding? 
you know, it's it's you have it's just it's pure gaslighting. You just have these groups completely whitewash Azov. And a small group of people can make a gigantic difference in many, many ways. Like I said, Charlottesville only had 300 neo-Nazis, and it certainly made a difference. You know, uh, the, the white supremacists in Buffalo, there's one person, killed a whole lot of people. Yep. And, you know, and, and it's the same that goes that people say, oh, Azov gets only their political party, only gets 2% in the polls. That is correct. That shows that the vast majority of Ukrainians are not fascists and are not anti-Semites. Okay, but the problem is the power is not for the polls, because if you see, um, you know, if you see somebody like like the the white supremacy shooter in Buffalo, if he went if he ran for mayor of Buffalo, he wouldn't have gotten elected. That doesn't mean he doesn't have power. You know what I mean? Like like neo-Nazi David Duke doesn't do well in the polls. That doesn't mean he's not dangerous, you know, and and what Ryan said or Rob said about um the, new, the Azov having a veto on Zelensky of overriding, yeah, I'll tell you this, as soon as Zelensky got elected, they wanted to do something, um, a, a, a media company wanted to do this thing, they wanted to have a joint radio program, uh, television program with people in Kiev and people in Moscow. And this was a very much an echo of the Soviet times in the 80s. They would have these programs between Phil Donahue, the old school Phil Donahue used to have these programs between America and the Soviet Union, it was supposed to have people to, to get together and just, you know, try to find some commonality among everyday people. So this was like a big, a big symbolic move towards peace. And Belitsky, uh, who was a founder of Azov, put out a video saying to Zelensky, okay, to the president of Ukraine, saying, if this program doesn't get canceled by tomorrow, we'll have a conversation in your office. Okay, this is a man attached to a far right unit telling, directly threatening the democratically elected president of Ukraine, okay? Within a half hour, the television program was canceled, okay? Yeah. yeah this is dangerous. It, it's polls? dangerous. They don't need the polls. They already, they already have veto by violence. They yeah. don't need the polls. Well, and, uh, I have a... Go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, so what can we, not just like, the what can the people of Ukraine do? What can we is just like dare I call us good people of the world who don't want Nazism and neo-Nazism, who don't want white supremacy, who don't want fascism. What can we do? Who don't want war. Yeah, globally to make sure that the this cohesive unit of, of neo-Nazism that has spanned globally, how can we kind of snuff this before they can get even more power? Like what can we do in our everyday life to make sure that these these horrible people don't rise to even more elevated positions of power and don't get even more emboldened. Like what can hey, we do to stop to, that? Hey, speak to, speak to people in the media. First of all, and get people to understand that this is not just Russian propaganda. That just because Putin says something doesn't exist. Okay. And that it is possible to support the people of Ukraine and to condemn Russia while at the same time saying we should not be supported. This is the number one thing. Because you at this point, you have the biggest media groups in the world simply saying that neo-Nazis are not neo-Nazis. Just flat out denying it. Okay? And including denying their own reporting. Okay? I mean, <laughs> no, you have groups that were like, I think it was The Guardian or the BBC. I'm not sure which one. So don't call it, but they were like, they were like, People say Azov is neo-Nazis, which is a lie. And at the same time, there's stories about like the BBC that talked about the Azov being battalion being neo-Nazis. I mean, they're getting to the point where they're rewriting their own articles, where they're denying the reporting. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, 
is immediately keeping up on the ties between local neo-Nazis in your country and the and the people and the ones who are fighting in Ukraine, because this is a transnational movement with Azov becoming the hub of it. Okay? So that is immediately something we should be monitoring, we should be looking at. For example, in California, there was a uh, you guys will love this. Uh, there was a, I think it was like a workers' protest uh, several years ago, and the neo-Nazi group violently broke it up, and people were stabbed and and uh, and attacked. And the leader of this group, uh, Matthew Heimbach, okay, who was also one of the leaders of Charlottesville, he spent several months training and meeting with neo-Nazis across Europe, okay. So here's a guy who went to train with extremists and radicals for months, came home and organized a bloody protest that, it, that, that wound up sending people to the hospital. Now, you would think that the media would pay attention to the fact that somebody trained overseas and was, was spending time overseas. Um, I, I, won't, I shouldn't say trained. He, he certainly very much spent a long time traveling our neo-Nazi circles. Not a single media uh, outlet covered that fact. Hmm. I think it was one time a, a Wisconsin newspaper wound up writing about it. That was it. And when I talked to editors there, and I'm like, shouldn't we be interested in this? And it's like, and you like, you just get feeling. It's like, pretend, you know what? Pretend his name was, you know, was Arabic. Maybe then you'd be interested. You know what I mean? But because he's a white guy, we're just like, oh, it's okay. It doesn't matter where he went. And that's, you know, I mean, to start paying attention to these transnational networks and most importantly, start pinning people down where they go on television and they say, oh, anybody who says anything against Putin is, uh, you know, anything about Azov is enabling Putin. Okay. Um, Fight back on these things. You know, another thing, I'll give you a very quick thing, but here's how the whole argument falls apart. Russia is obsessed with racism in America. Okay. It, It has been obsessed since the days of the Soviet Union partly because Russia wants to have an excuse for its own persecution of, of gays and of different communities, partly because uh, Russia is competing for, the, uh, for alliances in Asia and South America, in uh, Africa, and it wants to portray America as racist, which America is racist, okay? But the point is, Russia is obsessed with American racism. Anytime there's anything, you can be sure that Russian media, both the English-speaking and the Russian language varieties, will be focusing on it, hyper-focused on it, okay? So according to this, I remember a few years ago, Howard Dean, remember Howard Dean? Howard oh, yes. Howard Dean accused me, I wrote an article about neo-Nazis attacking um, Roma, the Roma people, who are like the most vulnerable people in the world, okay, in, uh, in Ukraine, and Howard Dean was like, I wonder, gee, I wonder if this is Russian propaganda, okay? So I wound up writing a response to him. Um, Lev, if, if you're pissing off Howard Dean, you're doing the right thing. Thank you. Well, first of all, I wonder, I said, you know, well, I wonder if Howard Dean has sex with stuffed animals. You know, that was based on as much information. as I'm really glad the editor allowed me to write that. <laughs> <laughs> but I also said, listen, I mean, if you're, if you're saying enabling Russian propaganda, any discussion of racism or inequality in America enables Russian propaganda. Okay, so if you're saying, oh, if you talk about neo-Nazis, you're enabling Putin and Russian propaganda. Okay, if you're talking about shootings, if you're talking about the George Floyd shooting, if you're talking about any shooting, if you're talking about any racism in America, you are enabling Russian propaganda. You see how dumb that is? Okay, well, of course, but we have to remember, too, this has become the Democrats favorite playbook ever since 2016. 
and and not just, I mean every oligarch they they don't want to the the two corrupt parties who control our government they don't want the game to change right they want to keep blaming the other side or finding scapegoats and and in the Democrats case it's Russia uh, the Republicans love to blame China they always find a scapegoat to prevent themselves and so they can keep the broken system going and they can keep bringing it against everyday people and so they can keep not being accountable and they can continue to you know not use our government to help the people and instead use our government to help their corporate donors. And so this is why this narrative of, oh, Russian propaganda, everything that, that doesn't, that the U.S. establishment, that goes against the U.S. establishment is now considered Russian propaganda. Yeah. And it's really dangerous. And they, they called me- Bernie Sanders Russian propaganda. You know what I mean? Like, because we voted for him, because American people voted for him. You know, all of a sudden, if you were supporting Bernie, it was Russian propaganda. Like, no, I was supporting Bernie because I wanted to support Bernie. A Russian person didn't tell me. But this is the insanity of our politics today. It's, again, the scapegoating and the fear mongering because they don't want us finding solutions to the problems because the solution is to get them out of power and get real people in there who actually want to help everyday people. And you like this, too, because it's interesting that. Um, the reason that this goes back so long, because I know you guys like to look at things from a historical point of view, too. Martin Luther King was persecuted and harassed and wives had by the FBI yep. under the excuse that he was a Soviet agent or Soviet use. Yep. yep. Going even back to World War One, there's this amazing article as uh, in the New York Times that it says something like Germans incite Negroes. OK, that was the headline. Okay, and it was about how just how African-Americans who were understandably not too keen to be fighting for the United States in some battle were really brainwashed and fooled by the Germans. Okay, so African-Americans, according to this racist idea, couldn't think for themselves and they were simply tricked by the others. And it's the same exact type of racism and paternalistic behavior and mind view that said, you know what I mean? In 2016, people voted. They didn't vote for Hillary Clinton because Russia tricked them. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, just imagine African-American in Michigan and, you know, he was going to vote. He was going to vote for Hillary Clinton, but then Russia bamboozled him with Facebook ads. Okay. It's so, so, so racist. Okay. And what people say, like people even said that, like, you know, um, uh, when there was uh, the issue of children in cages, for example, and they said, you know, oh, Russia is fanning the flames of American racism. Really? Like, how would Russia do it? Like, after George Floyd, they say it too. It's like, it's already the number one story in America. What can Russia do to flame the actual story? And also, yeah. Russia's not the one who shot George Floyd. Yes, or is the one putting kids in cages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy to me. Well, Lev, this is we are we are at our uh, we've kind of come to to the end here. We're almost at two hours, but I just want to thank you so much for for your time, uh, for coming on and speaking to us. And I know you read a you wrote a book. Uh, where can people find that, or how can they follow you and follow your work? I'm not on social media, but uh, my book is smart, a back- smart man. I can't. I can't. Smart man. <laughs> book is Backpack a Bear and Eight Crates of Vodka. It's it's about coming to America as a child refugee from the Soviet Union. Um, it's certainly not a, uh, you know, it certainly does not reflect well on Moscow and their anti-Semitism. Uh, a Backpack a Bear and Eight Crates of Vodka, if you're interested. I mean, you can just Google me. I just do, you know, I 
like I said, I try to cover stories from both ends and I try to criticize. I'm much more of a human human rights type of guy. My interest is, is who poses the danger to it, regardless of what country they're funded by. And finally, just want to say thank you to both of you because watching this, having watching just all of American establishment and media and a lot of lefty media all just say that Azov doesn't exist or it's not a big deal has just been like, I mean, it's just been so horrible seeing this happen, you know, like seeing that this like, you know, and it's just seeing you, seeing your Twitter and seeing you talk about it, it was just like an anchor of sanity. So um, I just want to say thank you. Well, so I much. mean, if you really care about the people of Ukraine and you, you really care about their sovereignty, you have to understand that once this war is over, the people of Ukraine are not going to be better off when you have a, a, a Nazi battalion that now has all this weapons and, and funding from the, from the U.S. government. Like they're able to now control the president like you like you've eloquently pointed out on numerous occasions. Like this is not a democratic society that, that they're laying the ground for. This is this is this is just more oligarchy and more far right, you know, fascism. And, and that is not a path to liberation for the people uh, and and what the ukrainian people deserve so you know we start to see all of this intersect and, and usually where it intersects is is you've got you know very powerful corporate corporations who are aligned with very powerful politicians who don't want the game to change they want to keep rigging the system against the little guy uh and and they and they'll flex their power uh in any way possible and and not only against the working class in our country but also uh, and other countries. So, you know, look, I want what's best for the Ukrainian people. I, I hope that Putin uh, stops. You know, I hope I, I wish that we could get Zelensky and Putin and Biden and and at, at a table. And so we can have some real peace talks. So we can actually have diplomacy. I wish that somebody with power uh, would do the right thing. But since they won't, what we need to do is flex our people power. And we all have to come together and, like you said, keep speaking out against neo-fascism, against uh, uh, Russia for invading, against the United States for continuing to fund wars throughout the world. And, and you know, the people deserve better than this. You know, this is our planet. You know, these are our resources. You know, we deserve uh, to live in peace and dignity. And we don't deserve to live under the rule of these oppressive oligarchs and corrupt politicians so and it all starts with information and that's what you guys are doing it does so thank you so much uh uh everyone for for coming to to the show tonight rob thank you and lev thank you and and we'll see you next week with another episode of unruly thank you so much again lev